Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. Please note that this episode contains descriptions of violence that some people may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia, to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This, Justin, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadine Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the UK, police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. And freedom will be defended. You're listening to episode three of my chat with former Metropolitan Police Firearms Officer Tony Long. If you haven't yet listened to episodes one and two, I highly recommend you pausing this episode and listening to those ones first. So if I wonder if we can move on to 2005 and you're 100 days out from retirement. Um, and I'm sh- I'm assuming at that point of your life, you're starting to make plans for a post-policing life and what that looks like for you maybe in the private sector and what skills that you could take with you to kind of embrace and, and use. In reality, no. Um, I was pretty much in denial. When you when you come towards the end of retirement, you come into work to and you check your correspondence tray. Well, not anymore because you're not allowed correspondence anymore because it against the Data Protection Act. But back <laughs> back in 2005, I'd come in and I'd look at in there and it, all right, nothing in there, no memos to go for a hearing test or anything like that. And but they bombard you with all of these glossy pamphlets about retirement and uh, what to do. And I was just completely in denial because I was still doing the job that I loved. Part of me knew that I was no longer at the front of the team when we went for a team run in the morning. Um, but part of me was like, yeah, but you can sprint at the end and still overtake most of them. I was 48. I was approaching 50 and I was still enjoying doing what I was doing. I got approached um, by a, a friend of mine who was ex-military about doing 
a job for the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, where we, whereby I'd be going to places like Afghanistan and, uh, and Iraq and, and protecting Foreign and Commonwealth personnel uh, when they were doing yeah. what they had to do in those places. That was, that was my biggest option. I didn't have anything else going. Um, I'd spent my whole career talking to people in the, the, the tactical industry, for want of a better word. I had loads of contacts there and I'd had quite a few offers, but I wasn't really interested uh, in, in doing a commercial job. So, yeah, 2005, August, 11th of August 2005 was my retirement date. So you're 100 days out before that retirement day and you're on operations and obviously yeah. an incident which would probably change your life for the next 10 years uh, comes into play. You know, it's and beyond. Talk us through it. And beyond, yeah. So um, by this time I was on Grey Team and um, we had a job coming, a warning notice coming for a job working for a secretive cell within the flying squad um, called the projects team. And over the years, the projects team has been given different tasks to look at. But at this particular time, they were interested in con contract killings and time critical intelligence in relation to possible fatal shootings or, or the like. Mm -hmm. uh, and it all revolved around organized crime groups. Uh, and the intelligence was that a group of, uh, predominantly black um, suspects were going to go and rob some rival Colombian drug dealers. Um, the, the, the black group was an organised crime group. There was some white people amongst it. There was uh, at least one Hispanic uh, amongst it. Uh, they dealt with these Colombians before, they, in, insofar as they'd gone and bought drugs off them. So the Colombians knew them. But yeah. on this occasion, they were going to rip them off for all of their drugs um, the inference being that they were going to torture them to find the location of the drugs and then obviously kill them because the Colombians knew who they were. And you don't really want to be pissing off Colombians that know you. No. Um, so uh, we got briefed on it. Um, it was a surveillance team deployed following these suspects. And we did about a 12, 14 hour shift, basically following the intelligence around, but nothing came to fruition. The intelligence we got was that the organized crime group was speaking to the Colombians. They were trying to make a meet, but the, the organized crime group hadn't yet got together sufficient weaponry to go and rob these Colombians. They were mm. telling the Colombians that they were struggling to get the money together. The Colombians were getting more and more impatient. And then I'm guessing the time, but somewhere about sort of nine, nine 10 o'clock at night, the Colombians said, right, we're going out clubbing or whatever. You need to get your act together and call us in the morning. So we all got sent home. Now, sometime during the day, we got added intelligence that the weapons that they were looking for were two Mac 10 submachine guns. Mm. The Mac 10 submachine gun is um, very crude, very mm. simple weapon, um, box like, it's made out of stamp steel, it's been around since the 60s, or certainly the early 70s. Um, and it's got a pretty hellacious rate of fire. It's cyclic rate of fire. In other words, if it had a magazine long enough, um, is in excess of a thousand rounds a minute. It's just, and you know, you've got, so you can, you can, you know, fire a shitload of ammunition in a very short space of time. And it's pretty indiscriminate. I, de I describe it as a lead super soaker, um, you know, because unless you're actually really well trained on it and, and you fire it in very short bursts, it's going to run away with you. So quite a dangerous weapon to be up against. Yes. And we were having a lot of problems with MAC-10s at the time because um, a criminal armourer had bought, a lot of them on the pretext of, of, of converting them to, um, or sorry, 
there were blank firing ones that he bought and the, the pretext was he wanted them for a James Bond movie. Um, mm. So he bought loads of them, about 100 plus of them, uh, but he'd re- he converted them to, to live firing in. Yeah. Uh, and they were they were flooding the market. A lot of them were being used on jobs and we were recovering a lot. Of them. So the intelligence looked really good. So because of this added intelligence, when we paraded for the, the following morning, so we paraded a similar time to the previous morning, which was about sort of 0600, I suppose, we had, my team leader had organised um, an additional car. So instead of having three cars, which we'd normally go out, and well, we got in a four-car package, but one of those cars is the control ship. Yeah. So that has the team leader and the silver commander in it, the senior detective on the ground. Yeah. But we normally have like three um, what we call CARVs, covert armed response vehicles. Um, but we now had four. And so we had a mixed team as well because it's now Saturday. Um, and obviously guys want to take time off at the weekend sometimes. So we had guys mm. covering for some of our team who were, who were off on leave, plus the additional yeah. guys, which isn't a problem because we're constantly working with guys from another team. Um, so this time, six o'clock in the morning, we get sent direct over to a police station in southwest London, where, which is the nearest police station to where the intelligence tells us that there might be a meet in a cafe. We go over there, we, we park up, um, and we sit and we wait for quite a few hours, and then we start to get some intelligence. Yeah, there was one of the one of the known subjects is in a, in the cafe. Yeah, or he's been yeah. met by another one. Uh, da, 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 and it went on like that. And eventually, there was three, I think, um, and they left and they got into a silver Golf, um, and they drove to an address that was a known address. It was on the, like, the intelligence package. Uh, mm-hmm. They went into the address, which turned out to be um, a, a crack factory, but also storage for, for guns. Uh, and they came out carrying a, ha- a bag. Now, all of this is based on intelligence that has been gathered from a source that I'm not allowed to know. I can make assumptions. My assumption yeah. is that we could listen to what they're saying on the phone. But I, if I knew that, I couldn't tell you that because I'd actually be contravening the law. And it's a mm. piece of legislation called RIPA, the Regulation of Investigative Powers Act. And it basically covers all t- sorts of... Um, covert um, government surveillance you know anything to do with bugging or anything like that and obviously there are yeah. there are measures that have to be taken there are there are routes that have to be taken to get authorization and all this was all authorized but in great britain unlike most of the rest of the world product that you get from that type of intelligence can only be used as intelligence it can't be submitted in a, in a court of law mm. So in America, for instance, if you and I were on the phone talking about a major drugs deal and that was recorded, that could be played to a jury and the jury could use that in their decision-making oh, wow. process. But in the okay. UK, that, you can't do that. So my assumption is that we were able to listen to their conversation and literally every bit time we got told, right, uh, we think they're going to go to Harleston, they went to Harleston. Oh, we think they're going to pick up another package. They picked up another package. Oh, we now think they're going to make their way towards what's it? They started making their way towards that. So the intelligence was clearly good, um, and wow. we knew that the bad guys lived somewhere in Hendon, but we weren't exactly sure where. Oh, sorry, Edgware, but we weren't exactly sure where. We knew it was near the bus station or the railway station or somewhere like that, but we didn't actually know where it was. So the concern was that if we lost the suspects, they might then go and do the robbery, kill the. Colombians and of course we have a duty of care to Colombian drug dealers you know if we have intelligence that their lives are in danger then we've got to protect them 
we were part of what we call a MAST operation, which stands for Mobile Armed Support to Surveillance. It's a well-trained, well-practiced, well-rehearsed um, drill, whereby we follow the surveillance team on what we call state green. And we just keep back out of it and let the surveillance team do their magic. Then when the Silver Commander decides there's a sufficiency of, ev of evidence to make an arrest, um, he can call state amber which means that we start making our way through the surveillance mm. convoy. And when we get to the front, um, we take over the surveillance very briefly and we can ask for state red. State red means we get permission to do the actual intervention. And then we box the vehicle in. It's very aggressive, but you have to dominate them quickly. You can't give them thinking time because otherwise we could end up with a high-speed pursuit or they could end up firing from the vehicle. Um, one of our tactics, if they try to reverse out or try to ram their way out, is to shoot the tyres out with specialist shotgun rounds called Hatton rounds. We may use distraction grenades, but we certainly we'll be smashing the windows in. We'll be dragging people out. The whole object of the exercise is to dominate them as quickly as possible. And I was the front seat passenger in the Bravo car. That's the, the middle car in the con normally in a three-car convoy. And our job is to yeah. go alongside. And the front seat passenger, and I was the front seat passenger that day. The previous day, I'd been the driver but today I was the front seat passenger, is basically to pull alongside the car and cover and stay covering the suspects in the car until I'm satisfied that my colleagues are out and we've got a foot on the ground. Yeah. Remember earlier on I talked about cover and movement? Yeah. You know, when you get out of a police car, um, particularly if you're, you're driving it, you're going to have to put it into neutral. You're going to have to open the door. You're going to have to draw your gun. You're going to have to put on your baseball cap. You're going to have to make sure you don't step in that dog shit. And all the time you're doing that... <laughs> It's fractions of a second that add up to perhaps two or three seconds where you're not looking at the car. At the target, and, you want, yeah. and you want someone that's just standing there. Well, as the intervention is coming to a, we've, we're on red, we've been given the strike, 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 attack, attack, attack. My vehicle is, is maneuvering to get in alongside. I am really, really uncomfortable with a rear seat passenger, a guy called, we now know, Azel uh, Rodney. Um, we know that what we believe are two MAC-10s and another pistol have been put in the back of the car on the back seat of the car and he is in the back seat of the car and he is all over the place he's looking over his shoulder he's leaning forward and very fidgety uh, very fidgety and then as i pull alongside him my colleagues are getting out there's stops shouts of armed police and all the rest of it um he ducks down on the back seat so now i can't see him at all and sure. the, the, the driver and the front seat passenger they're getting dealt with and i'm i'm just watching this boat in the back seat what the fuck is he going to do and suddenly he springs up again. And the way in which he sprung up, his shoulders were hunched, his hands were below the level of the door, so I couldn't see what he had in his hands. But my colleagues are now, you know, starting to wrap around this vehicle. And I've got fractions of a second to make a decision whether or not to shoot. Now, if you're confronted by a man that's holding a four-year-old child as a hostage and stabbing her neck with a knife, or if you're confronted by three armed robbers wearing balaclavas and carrying sawn-off shotguns and magnum revolvers, that's gold standard. Mm. That decision-making process doesn't get any easier. People go, oh, it must be so difficult to make that decision. It really isn't. You don't make a decision. The decision's made for you. You know, there's no yeah. choice. You haven't, you know, it's like, well, I've got to shoot. You don't go, hmm, should I, hmm, but he's not actually, hmm. If you don't do that, you're in the wrong job. You have to shoot the moment you perceive a, the life-threatening thing. Now, I had to work on the premise that he could have got hold of that Mac-10 and was about to open fire. And, and that was my genuine belief. My genuine belief is that I couldn't wait any longer. I had to open fire. 
So I fired a, a series of rounds. The first one's obviously smashed the windows, so that slightly obscured my vision. The second shot's knocked more of the glass out. No one can, even the scientists can't be absolutely certain what shot did, you know, but they've got an educated guess as to what bullet caused what damage. The belief is probably my first shot lodged in the door and mm. wouldn't, have, wouldn't have hit him. The second one almost certainly hit him in the arm here, which made him turn. The third shot probably hit him in the back. I fired a total of eight rounds. The dramatic recording of the moment three police vehicles perform what's known as a hard stop on the car Azel Rodney was travelling in. Easy, easy, easy turning <laughs> in the back seat. Hail rain, hail rain. Junction hail drive near side. Watch the inside. Yeah, yeah, near side when we do this. Yeah. It's suitable, we're looking to do it uh, at the roundabout if he stops. Attack, attack. Right, we're going in. There we go. Okay, hold, hold, sit. Right, yeah, sweet, sweet as, sweet as, sweet as. fired six rounds in quick succession and the reason I fired six because we'd gone from double taps we'd been told uh, when they brought in European human rights legislation that we could no longer train to fire two shots because one shot might have been sufficient and if you fired a second yeah. shot just as a matter of course that might be illegal mm -hmm. so it was all put in front of the lawyers and, and the decision was made that you could keep shooting until there was no longer a threat you assessed it all the way through you're going bang 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 is he falling is he falling no he's not bang 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 no he's falling I stopped shooting and that's exactly what I did. So there came a point where um, I actually lost sight of him. And to this day, I don't know quite why I lost sight of him, whether he slumped or whatever, I don't know. But I pushed myself back in my seat. I saw he was still in what I described as a vertical position. In other words, he wasn't flat on the seat. And I fired another two shots. So that was a total of eight shots fired, seven of which hit him. Um, and that was it. He died at the scene. We, you know, we did our best to, to give first aid to him. I say we, my colleagues did. As soon as I told my team leader that it had been me that had fired, I got put in the control ship, so I didn't pay any further part in the aftermath of it. And eventually we left the scene and I was driven back to our operational base. We wrote what we call brief duty statements. So it's literally on day, date, time, place. I found myself in a situation where I was confronted by a man who I believed to be armed. Um, I believed he posed a threat to my colleagues, so I opened fire. We have to do that before we can go home. That's the minimum that we can write. And then we were allowed at that time uh, 48 hours grace before we came back and wrote our full statements. And the reason for that delay was because, again, based on legal and medical or clinical evidence, was that yeah. your recollection when adrenaline's just recently been in the body and everything else isn't going to be as good as if you just take a bit, take a few deep breaths and, you know, get some decent dinner inside you and get a good night's sleep. And then you're, more, you're in a better position to write a more accurate statement. That was 
that was the policy. And so that's exactly what we did. So we came in, we took a day off, we came in the following day um, and uh, I wrote a full statement. I was investigated from uh, 30th of April 2005 through to November 2005 when I got the all clear. And I was treated very fairly by them, I had to say. In November, I got a report, uh, got called in and told, uh, here's the report, and it just basically said that um, Echo 7, because by this stage, because of all the problems I had back in the 80s of having my name in the paper, we'd gone to a situation of having an anonymity system. It's dependent on the judge agreeing to it. The judge can take that anonymity away, but for the yeah. time being anyway, I was known as Echo 7. And it said Echo 7 um, uh, acted, in, in our opinion, acted in accordance with his training and in accordance with the law. Um, he fired no more rounds than were reasonable in the circumstances. Um, and we find that there's no case to answer. And they submitted their paperwork um, to the Crown Prosecution Service. The Crown Prosecution Service took another six to eight months and almost to the day, um, you know, a year after the event, announced that I wasn't going to be prosecuted for any offence. By which time I'd done my um, selection training for the Foreign Commonwealth Office out in the United States, mm. done a few other training courses here in the UK. Um, I was going through my vetting. By the time I got the all clear um, and my senior officers had written a letter to the Foreign Commonwealth Office saying, um, yeah, Police Constable Long is... Uh, has come out the other end and, you know, he's, it's, he's been proved that he acted in accordance with his training, etc., etc., and lawfully. Um, the Foreign Commonwealth Office decided they didn't want to employ me anymore. Oh. So I lost that job, um, and probably quite wisely, because obviously they, I don't know whether they had a crystal ball, but they obviously knew that at some point in the future it was going to go wrong. So I stayed in the job for another three years uh, because I didn't have anything else to go to specifically that I wanted to do. Um, mm. I helped set up a new sniper team um, and a few other bits and pieces. And then I got offered another job in the commercial world in relation to tactical equipment. So I went off and worked for a company called Edgar Brothers, based mm. in Macclesfield in Cheshire, um, where I spent my time liaising with police forces and UK military units and going to trade shows around the world. And it was, it was a good job, but I am not a salesman. And then... Um, because of Ripper, going back a little bit now, when it got put in front of a coroner, the coroner said, I can't put this in front of a jury in a coroner's court because three quarters or certainly 50% of the officer's justification in shooting comes is from comes from intel and it's not admissible to a jury. In fact, mm. even when they wrote the legislation, it hadn't even occurred to them that a coroner might need to look at it. So a coroner wasn't authorised to look at it either. The only people that could look at it were judges of a certain high rank, like high court judges or whatever. Uh, and so there was a period sort of between 2008 onwards where basically Labour government handed over to the Conservative government. And between the two of them, um, they ended up sort of what happened in the end was a new bit of legislation came out, which entitled yeah. a judge to sit on his own without a jury. And that's exactly what happened. So in about 2012, I think, might be 2011, um, I sat before a 72-year-old retired High Court judge with very limited experience of criminal matters. He was mainly a civil 
place judges as far as, far as the best of my knowledge came from a sort of a class and a sort of a background whereby my my take on it was that he was extremely naive mm. um, he listened to all the evidence he went away and deliberated on it wrote a big report uh, and in the opening bit of the report he put it's the job of the Metropolitan Police Service or the police service in this country um, to protect the public not shoot them and if I'm honest at that point I kind of knew I was fucked um, pretty ordinary statement to make yeah and uh, he went, then went on to say basically that although he was measuring my actions by civil standards which are for him you know a lot more open than if, if it was a criminal I've been charged with a criminal offence. He believed I'd acted unlawfully um, and that I couldn't justify my actions of shoot. So, you know, he said things like, you know, I fired, deliberately fired two shots into the head of a dying man. Well, I've absolutely said in my evidence that I hadn't deliberately fired at his head at all. What I now know, or what I knew by that point, was that he was, his body was slowly slumping towards me. So as I'm firing, the shots are progressively going up until the last two shots hit him in the head. But they weren't wasn't my attention. I was shooting for centre mass. Um, if Azel Rodney had been standing on the pavement when I shot him, I may have only fired two or three shots because at mm-hmm. that point I would have seen him gravity take over and him start to fall to the ground and I would have ceased fire. But because he was strapped in to the back seat of the car, it took longer. He put in his report that the um, the gun that um, Colt 45 automatic that we found on the back seat of the car was something, something like measurably out of out of his reach. He was lying on top of it. It wasn't a stretch mm. limo. It was a bloody Golf GT. You know, he was actually lying on top of the Colt 45. And yet he said that it was out of reach. Uh, you know, that, that gun wasn't operable. It had been deactivated. But he had ammunition for it. So presumably he thought it worked. The intelligence was accurate. It was accurate insofar as there were three guns in the car. There, yeah. there was handcuffs. They all had gloves. Yeah. There was balaclavas. Mm-hmm. Um, they were definitely going to go and carry out the robbery. Um, and I've no doubt that they would have killed the, killed the Colombians. The problem is, is that when people, when criminals speak on the, on the phone, they make an assumption that they might be taped. So they tend to speak not in clear speech. Mm. Uh, and they talk heavily in patois quite often as well. Yeah. And what apparently was said is we've got two Big Macs and a little one. That was decoded as being two Big Macs and a pistol. In point of fact, they had two fairly large pistols. Um, and a very small pistol, like a Derringer type thing. Right. But but intelligence is never accurate, totally accurate, you know. So the, the this this judge finds that you acted um, unlawfully, and as you quite described it, you thought you were in a bit of a pickle. Bit of a pickle. When, bit of a pickle. Yeah. yeah. But a bit of a pickle when that came out. And then in 2014, you're charged with Azel Rodney's murder. Yes, yeah, so, so what happened is as soon as the judge found that I was guilty, the paperwork was referred by the IPCC back to the Crown Prosecution Service. Now, bear in mind, mm-hmm. the Crown Prosecution Service had taken nearly eight months to look at it back in 2006, uh, 2005, 2006. And they'd even employed a silk, you know, a highly qualified barrister to look through it. Uh, and even the silk had decided that there was no case to answer. But I kind of knew in my heart of hearts that if a judge has openly said, and it's a matter of public record, that he thinks I've acted unlawfully, they're just going to go, well, you know what, probably no chance of a conviction, but we'll give it a punt anyway, you know. So you must and that's have been what they fairly, did. You must have been fairly shattered 
on that day when you're charged with with as a serious offence as you probably, probably I, can I would, be? In, in... I would say that that was um, well. To be honest, I, I was never formally charged. Um, I was just required to uh, appear at um, uh, Westminster Magistrates Court on day, date, time, and place, and that's that's what I did. Um, I have to say that the Met hierarchy, uh, particularly Cressida Dick, who was uh, the Deputy Assistant Commissioner of Special Operations at the time, were hugely supportive. And the bosses at SO19 were given the go-ahead, uh, even though I was long retired, to provide protection for me and to get me in and out of court sort of covertly so that my photograph wasn't obtained by the press, et cetera, et cetera. Unfortunately, that didn't work. SO9 attempted to smuggle me into court. Um, that kind of worked and I got into the court but as soon as I got into the court um, as soon as the magistrate had done what he needed to do during which time he named me even though I still had anonymity granted to me by the Home Secretary wow. uh, he still named me in open court I was taken outside uh, through the back entrance of the, of the box put into handcuffs and taken down and put in a cell uh, bearing in mind you know I'd spent 33 years as a police officer putting people behind bars yeah. now you know here I am nine years after retirement, and I'm getting treated like a criminal. It had been agreed that SO19 would transport me from the magistrate's court to the Old Bailey because a magistrate can't grant bail for, for murder. So a judge had, had agreed to take the case and listen to my, my uh, appeal. Um, I was handcuffed. I was taken up to the, uh, to the court. Um, I was granted bail. And here's an interesting bit. I've been granted bail by a judge at the Old Bailey I get mm. taken out the back entrance of the of the dock and immediately get put in handcuffs and taken down the cells and immediately be put back in the cells. Mm. I would have thought that's unlawful detention, apart from anything mm. else. The judge has just granted me bail. Even if there's paperwork mm. to be done, how they warranted handcuffing me and putting me in the cell, I, I don't know to this day. But yeah, that was probably the worst day of my police career, albeit that it was nine years after I retired. What was that process like in terms of then you know, meeting with lawyers, discussing the case. Your family's emotions must have been all over the place. You've got a, you know, I assume a son who started a military career or close. Yeah, yeah my close son was, was, was well established in the military by this point. Um, yeah. As luck would have it, when it came up for the trial at the Old Bailey on the last last week, he was actually on leave um, anyway. Uh, so he was able to be there for the verdict. Um, my my now wife was my girlfriend at the time. My, my, I actually got divorced uh, back in, a, in the early 90s. Mm -hmm. And so I'd, been, I'd remained sort of single all that time, um, yeah. but had a, had a, a, a permanent girlfriend. We, we lived together, bought property together and everything. She, she wasn't even with me when I, when I was in the job. So she inherited all of this shite and, and was absolute stalwart, absolutely brilliant, um, as was her daughter. And... Um, but the support I got, not just from like, serving police officers and, and, and the management covertly, discreetly, because obviously once you're charged with murder, mm. you know, the, your former bosses at the yard can't openly support you. Um, but because SO19 could no longer provide me, get me in and out of court, for the trial, um, a group of guys got together, the two main instigators uh, that, that sorted it out. But we had a we had a small army of old grey SO19 blokes with pot bellies <laughs> uh, called the Expendables who um, <laughs> who basically 
gave up their time. People were travelling from all over the country to come down and just do their day, helping me get in and out of court. Several of them were had gone on, on retirement to become black cab drivers, so they were able to get me through the traffic, you know, through bus lanes and all the rest of it and get me to thing, and get me back again, get my family back again covertly. Um, I even had uh, a former member of Special Forces who I knew uh, come over from France to do his stint and a friend from a, used to be a SWAT team commander in California came over to sit in and listen wow. to the case and offer his services up for a day as well. So, yeah, I was, the support I got was absolutely amazing. The officer known only as Echo 7 had fired eight times. The firearms officer today told the hearing he felt he had no choice but to open fire. Azel Rodney, who was sitting in the back seat, was hit six times and died instantly. Were you the first UK firearms officer to be charged with murder? No. When I first went on, on Blue Team back in 1983, there was a guy on the team called Pat Hodgson. And uh, I worked with Pat Hodgson for about four or five years before I moved on to Black Team. Um, and in the 90s, when the ARVs were still relatively new, he was doing a stint attack to the ARVs and he shot a, the getaway driver for an armed robbery team who happened to be unarmed. Oh. Um, and he faced three trials at the Old Bailey. The first trial, um, as the judge was doing his summing up, one of the family um, shouted, uh, something from the um, public gallery. So the judge ordered a retrial. The second trial, it was heard right the way through, but it was a hung jury. They couldn't make a decision. And finally, on the third occasion, he was um, he was acquitted. So those those acquittals, they must almost be a bit of a bittersweet moment because you know no firearms officer goes to work with the intention of wanting to have to use lethal force against anybody. And there's 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 no there's, there's there's no positive outcomes that come out of it in terms of someone losing their life. Yes, they've taken a, a very poor decision to behave in a particular manner, which has caused the ramifications to, for for you or someone else to make that life changing decision. You then get acquitted. It must it must be all these sense of emotions running through. You know, there's a loss of life for someone who's made a very poor decision as part of a very dangerous gang. There's what that's one part. You're then going through the emotions of you know being charged for really doing your job and having to make a split decision in, in what you could see as saving the life of your colleagues and members of the public. And then this emotion of then having all that weight taken off your shoulders and being acquitted. And then the whole media amplification that comes from that. Well, to be honest, my biggest issue with the media, mm. both mainstream media and social media was on, was during the whole process and the build up to the trial. And right from the very outset, my very first the first time my name was mentioned in a paper in 1987, you know, they've written absolute crap. I can honestly say I've never read an account of an incident that I've been involved in. I'm not just talking about shootings. I'm just talking about any newsworthy incident that I've been involved with as a police officer where they just haven't lied like a cheap watch. They just make shit up. You know, they'll get the bare bones of the story and the editor will go, mm, dull, liven it up. And, you know, they'll like, they just make crap up. I mean, I had one point I had, so it's, it's within a few months of the Zell Rodney shooting, we had the John Charleston Nezer shooting. And so the two lads who are good close friends of mine that were involved in the, in the John Charleston Nezer shooting, the Stockwell shooting, we all three of us ended up in the sin bin, for want of a better word, while our cases were investigated. 
And we yeah. were all put back on operational duties at around about the same time. And about a year later, one of the lads got involved in another shooting. He'd been shot at by an armed robber. He'd returned fire and killed the armed robber. Absolutely straight up, 100% gold standard operation. And the press got hold of the fact that he, this, this officer that had fired this shot had been one of the officers. And the Daily Mail in particular were like on a witch hunt. It was like, how dare they, you know, re-employ this lunatic who's killed an innocent man. Da, 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 da. And it went on like that. And um, the News of the World, that was still in existence, God bless them, decided that they were going to write a counter one supporting police officers that got involved in, in shootings. Mm. And um, they decided to cite me as an example of someone that had been involved in shootings um, and had been, you know, found to have acted properly and, and had been returned to duty only to then find themselves in, in another situation. And, of course, they, they got in touch with the press bureau at the Yard and the Yard went, mm. you can't write about that because he's got anonymity. Yeah, but we know his name. Yeah, we know you know his name, but he's currently got anonymity for the, the job that you're talking about. I had a weekend, and this is when I was with my previous girlfriend, and we were going through a bit of a rough patch, and we'd spent a lot of money, or I'd spent a lot of money to take us both to a nice hotel down in Sussex, you know, romantic meals, all that sort of stuff. And in the middle of the first romantic meal, my phone's going, I'm going to still go take this, and I'd have to leave and speak to my lawyer from the Police Federation, mm. who specialised in libel. Because he's like, right, they're, they're, they want to name you. Well, they can't. Yeah, well, we've told them that. Well, they want to do this, they want to do that, they want to do the other. Anyway, they, they followed a day of back and forth negotiation, if you like. And it ended up at the 11th hour. They're going to have to go to press because it's going to be on the, on the newsstands Sunday morning. Yeah. So my lawyer rings me out one final time. He said, look, he said, um, they're not going to call you the Met's own serial killer, which is what Sue Akers, a senior policewoman, had called me a couple of years earlier. Um, and that had got found its way into the papers. Um, they're not going to. Um, they're not going to call you by your surname. Uh, they're just going to call you Tony. Are you happy with that? I said, Well, no, not really. But if they're going to do it, then let it just be Tony. You know, let it just be Tony. I wake up the following morning. I go and buy a copy of the News of the World, which against my better judgment. I read the article, and it said the officer, known as Dirty Tony in the dark humour of his firearms co colleagues. Yeah, the, the, the serial killer comment was made by a senior policewoman. I think she was just trying, trying to be one of the lads. And she went, oh, well, you know, the Met's own serial killer when I introduced myself to her. And she got taken to task over that. I'm but sure years later, after, after, after the trial, after mm. I'd written a book, after a documentary had been done about me, I went on breakfast TV about something totally different. And... A celebrity, I won't mention his name to embarrass him, but he's obviously reading the auto cue, and he goes, uh, and we've got with us Tony Long, a former Met Police firearms officer, known as the Met's own serial killer on no. Breakfast TV. No. I've never been called that by my colleagues. It's never been a nickname, but that'll, that'll just stick with you. And, you know, saying things like, oh, yeah, Dirty Tony, that sounds really funny, until you think that that was written eight years before I got charged with murder. Yeah. Not quite so funny when you're waiting no. trial for murder and someone's posting on social media, oh, he was known as Dirty Tony. Can't Said so in it. the papers. Oh, he's known as the Met's own serial killer. Mm, he's innocent, isn't he? And so, mm. you know, even the mainstream media who should, you know, there should be some control over what they write 
you know, albeit they'll, they'll plead, you know, the freedom of the press, they pretty well write what they want. But when you then open it up to Joe Schmo, who can say whatever they like, you know, based on their opinion, because they're a, a keyboard warrior, you know, that becomes fact before you know it. And, and it's hugely detrimental and hugely stressful. You're acquitted and, and obviously say you've, you're fighting with all these emotions, especially what's been written about you. Was that the catalyst to you writing in 2016 your, your, your published book, Lethal Force, and the documentary to really try and get out there what you consider to be the most accurate story and representation of you as a police officer in, a, in really challenging environments? It was about 50% of the justification. The other 50% yeah. was the fact that I lost my anonymity. Had, had I stood trial as Echo 7, mm-hmm. um, as I'd given my evidence at the public inquiry, then I would have come out the end of it and I wouldn't have written a book. Mm. You know, I'd have been quite happy that some obscure figure of someone's imagination called Echo 7. Have, have you found uh, writing the book, um, Lethal Force, and taking part in documentaries a closure to that chapter in your life? Yeah, I think so. I think in, in much the same way that back in the, uh, the early 90s, um, after my few uh, few years of being, you know, in the doldrums, so to speak, um, I sort of reinvented myself when I came back from borough policing. And, and, you know, I think being able to tell my story on things like this, on podcasts, on, you know, on that documentary and in my book um, has allowed me to actually tell my side of the story. And, and, and for the most part, you know, there are some people who are, they're never gonna. They're never gonna. You know, you're an armed policeman. They're never gonna agree with what you've said or believe what you've said or whatever. And that's fine. I, I get that. But the knowledge that you know a lot of people have, have read my book and gone, "Oh, cry!" Didn't you know? Wow, really? Mm. Oh, that, I didn't realize that happened. Oh, that's not what it said in the press. That's not what it said on the TV. Um, yeah, it's it, it's allowed me to reinvent myself as well. Not reinvent myself, but retake. Mm. the real person that is Tony Long. Well, you know, I'm, I like to think I'm funny. You know, some people laugh at my jokes. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm, you know, I, I'm the sort of person I like to think most people would enjoy to go and have a drink with. I don't take myself too seriously. Um, I did a great job that I really love doing. Um, and I'm that stupid that if I wasn't 65 years of age, you know, if I'd have come through what I'd come through and I was still in my 40s, I'd probably still I'd be back in SO19 now kicking doors in. Um, but yeah, so in answer to your question, I think it has me felt made me feel a lot better about myself and uh, better about the world. And what's the future like in a post-policing world for Tony Long? What are you What are you doing with yourself? Well, bits of this, bits of that. You know, <laughs> thinking about writing another book. Yeah, yeah. Quite a lot of people have contacted me, like from Instagram, and said, like, you know, you put some really interesting stuff about the history of the unit in there, or. You know, you've got lots of funny stories you tell, you know. So I think in calling the next one Lethal Farce, and talking about all the things that go wrong. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. So for those listening out there, um, how can we get a copy of Lethal Force? How's the book done since it's been released? Um, tell us, Give us a bit of an insight. Um, the, the worst thing that I did was write a book, and here I am considering doing another one, that is geared towards people that either like the police or are police officers but particularly the latter, because police officers, by and large, are so tight mm. that they'll wait for their mate to read it or they'll lend their copy to their mate. 
So if you want to, <laughs> if you want to get, if you want to get rich by writing a book, don't write something that's geared towards policemen or squaddies because they just they're not going to buy it. Um, probably the best way to get it is on Amazon. Occasionally you'll see it, you know, in in, in the shop. You can order it through Waterstones and things like that. You can only yeah. get the um, paperback copy now. You can't get the hardback. Uh, but yeah, uh, Amazon fine. And and if you like it, put something on Amazon. I I, I, I can't remember how many. Um, how many comments there are on Amazon, but there's about three that are, are, are bad and all the rest are glowing. Like one of the bad ones makes me smile. It's some bloke from up north and he goes, sounds like a right Southern wanker or something like that, which I thought was, which I thought was, which I thought was quite, quite funny. Um, but yeah, so it seems to be, it seems to be fairly popular. Well, can I just say on behalf of my colleagues and I on the podcast, the last three hours have been truly fascinating. Three hours three hours and just ticking on four minutes that we've been talking away you know uh, you know i was armed through the entirety of my career in australia but never in never in a month of sundays faced the challenges that you did in the manner you did and the resilience uh, to get back up march on forward get back involved in the fight again in terms of challenging some of the most dangerous people on our streets i think is a incredibly honorable for you to to continue on it's incredibly humbling for me to sit here and listen to your stories and thank you for your service I think it's incredible. So on behalf of my colleagues and I, thanks for taking part in this. It's really been an honour to listen to you and uh, we wish you all the best in the future. And if you write another book, we'll be keen to be keen to read it. Okay, well, thank you very much. I've enjoyed talking to you. Protect and Serve is a Mash Pumpkin production hosted by Oliver Lawrence. Research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Wynn Stanley. Produced, edited and sound designed by Jack Lawrence. This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network.